And we'll pick up today in verse 16. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 16 says, He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. A man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Listen to counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. What is desirable in a man is his kindness, and it is better to be a poor man than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Strike a scoffer, and the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. He who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and disgraceful son. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. A rascally witness makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. Judgments are prepared for scoffers, and blows for the back of fools. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would, again, teach us from your word. Lord, teach us how to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord, thank you for these proverbs that you have granted to us. Lord, that teach us so clearly how to, in a very practical way, Lord, live a life of obedience to you. Lord, how to apply the word to the various situations of life. Lord, so that we have sufficient instruction, so that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. So, Lord, teach us today, Lord, that we might do what is good, light that we might discern between good and evil, and walk in that pathway that is good, Lord, and avoid the pathway of evil. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There, in verse 16, it says, He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. Here the contrast is between the one who keeps the commandment and the one who is careless, right? The one who keeps it is serious, he's thoughtful, he comes to the Word of God desiring to know what it says so that he can practice it, right? So that he can go and do it. Versus the one who is careless, who gives no thought, who doesn't think that it's that important, right? He has this take it or leave it, this kind of a loosey-goosey cavalier approach to the Word of God, And this goes along well with what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 5. This is what it is to be dull of hearing. It is to have this careless, cavalier attitude and approach to the word of God. Well, the one who is careless is going to die, but the one who keeps the commandment will keep his soul. Because he understands that the word of God, that these are issues of eternal life and eternal death. And nowhere is this more clearly manifested to us then in Genesis chapter 3, they're in the Garden of Eden. Did they keep the commandment? No. And what happened to their soul? It died, right? They did not keep the commandment, but they were careless. They were careless when how, with how they understood, how they handled, how they applied the word that they had received. And as a result, they died and plunged the whole world into death and misery as well. 
In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent said that you shall not surely die. He contradicted the word of God, and they had this careless approach to it, and it led to death and misery. Verse 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Here, there's always a connection between the first and greatest commandment and the second commandment. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, might, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Here, the connection is between loving your neighbor and between loving God. Whenever a person lends to the poor, or whenever he gives to the poor, he is lending to the Lord. This is the way that God sees it and the way that God receives it. Not that God is in anyone's debt, right? God can never be in any man's debt. However, God, because of his graciousness, when he sees the righteous man doing good to the poor, right, giving out of his own means in order to bless the poor, then God sees that and God will reward him. He will repay him according to this good deed, as if he is lending to the Lord and as if God is indebted to repay him, right? Here it's given, not that God actually has a debt to us, because God can command us to do whatever he pleases, but it's given in order to give us greater confidence in a, a way of showing the graciousness and the kindness of God. So when we give to the poor, when we're gracious to the poor, it is as if we are lending to the Lord, and God will always repay his debts, right? He will repay according to the good deed. So it is a fulfillment of this first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord our God. In 1 John chapter 4, here there is this connection between loving God and loving our neighbor. First John chapter 4, verse 19 so 21, says, we love because he first loved us. If one, someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So there is a correlation between loving God and loving our neighbor, right? How can you love God whom you've not seen if you don't love your neighbor, who you do see. If you don't love your brother, who you do see. Well, that is the same connection that's being made here in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is gracious to the poor man, he is lending to the Lord, right? He's doing this with the desire to not only love his neighbor, but also to love his God. And God sees these things, and God will repay accordingly. Also, we remember in Matthew 25, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, the way that the sheep are manifested, their righteousness and their obedience to God are manifested in that they did many kind things for Christ, right? He was hungry, they fed him. He was thirsty, they gave him something to drink. He was sick and they visited him and in prison and they came, right? In all these ways, the righteous, the sheep, have done these good deeds for Christ. And they say, when did we see you in this situation and do any of these things for you? And his response is, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. This is the same here. Whenever we are being gracious to the poor, gracious to our brothers, gracious to our fellow man in the proper way, we are doing that unto the Lord. And God sees these things and God will reward 
in due time. Verse 18. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. Here, while the son is young, while he is impressionable, this is when he needs to be disciplined. Children need to be disciplined from a very early age, while there is still hope for there to be correction that is received. Right? Children are much like a tree, right? A tree that is growing crooked. Yet if it is a sapling, right, if it is still young and tender, it can be straightened out, it can be corrected in a, in a way so that it grows straight, and when it arrives at maturity, then it is a straight tree, it's not a crooked tree. But there comes a point when if it begins to grow crooked, it gets set in those ways and is no longer able to be straightened out anymore, right? As it grows into maturity, there comes a point where the sapling is a mature tree, and at that point, there is no correction. It's just always going to be a crooked tree. And this is as it is with people as well. With children, there is a time in life when they are impressionable, when they can be taught, where they receive discipline, and it impacts their behavior and their conduct and their manner of life. That's what he means by discipline your son while there is still hope. While there is still hope that he will receive this instruction, this training, this correction, and it will actually impact his behavior so that he does what is good and right. But there comes a point in life when the child becomes a young man, and if his ways are crooked, then he is set in those ways. He has become hardened in his sin, and then he will not receive any correction or any discipline, and he will become a very perverse man. And this is what he means here. Now, ultimately, of course, we know it depends on the will of God. But in terms of our responsibility as parents, we are called to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are called to discipline our children for the purpose of godliness. And we need to train them the difference between good and evil. We need to teach them that there is rewards for doing good and there is punishment for doing evil. And when do they need to be taught this? Very, very early. Very early in life. And typically, if parents will put in that hard work in the early stages of life, then when the, children, the kids grow and become older children, when they become teenagers, when they become young men or young women, then they have learned these lessons and they're much easier to be around and they're more disciplined and they are more, better behaved in the way that they are. They become responsible citizens. And Lord willing, they become true believers who walk in godliness and righteousness. We know that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. And what is it that drives it away? It is the rod of discipline. The rod of discipline drives the foolishness out of the child. But that must be done when there's hope, when there is still hope for it to be driven away. If the child is left undisciplined, then there comes a point where it's, it's too late, right? There is no hope for this child to be changed. Right? If, if the child is never disciplined until he's 16 years of age, it's not going to be a good thing. He's already set in these ways. It must be done early in life. Verse 19, a man of great anger will bear the penalty. For if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. A man of great anger, a man who has no, no self-control, no control over his passions, over his anger, and when a person is given to great anger, 
What will always be the consequence of that? He's going to commit all sorts of sins. Sins with his mouth. He may even come to blows with people, right? He may strike his fellow man. He may even try to kill his fellow man, or he may even do so. Well, a man of great anger, because he's going to lose his anger and is going to act in these impulsive ways, commit these great sins against his fellow man and against his God, he will bear the penalty for that sin. Anger is a sin against God, and it will not go unpunished. And many times, this anger in the heart results and manifests itself outwardly in crimes against God and crimes against his fellow man, and that he will be punished both in this life and in the life to come. And if you rescue him out of this, you're only going to have to do it again. Because if he has no self-control over his anger, and he is arrested, and you go and bail him out, and somehow he has gotten off the hook for what he has done, well, what's he just going to do again in a couple of months? He's going to get angry again, he's going to do something erratic, and he's going to be right back in the same situation that he was in. He must bear the penalty for what he has done. And if he's given to fits of rage and to acting in this impulsive way, he's going to bear that penalty. And even if you rescue him once, he's still not going to learn his lesson because he has no control over his great anger. His great anger is his master, and it has enslaved him to do its will, right? To do its bidding, and he will just continue to do these things over and over again. He'll repeat the same sin in many, many different ways. Verse 20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Listen to counsel and accept discipline. Now, of course, he doesn't mean listen to bad counsel, but good counsel and accept good and right discipline, right? If you do this, you're going to be wise the rest of your day. If you have this practice, this virtue of humility, of not believing and thinking that I am the epitome of all wisdom and understanding, the fount of all of this, but rather I am bereft of wisdom and I need counsel, I need guidance, I need discipline from other people. I need the Word of God primarily to be teaching me these things, but then I need others who are, have more wisdom than I do to also be instructing me in the things that I need to know. If our attitude, our posture in the Christian life is of such a humble state, then we're going to be wise the rest of our days because we're going to have this attitude of humility that seeks out counsel and wisdom and is dependent first upon God and then also depends upon those who are good counselors. Then we'll be wise the rest of our days. But those who think that they know everything, then they're never going to listen to anyone else and they're never going to have wisdom because they don't need it, because they think that they themselves already have it all figured out. Proverbs 15, 22. says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Many counselors are needed, good counselors, so that the plans succeed. We need to depend and rely upon other people. No man is, possesses all of, the, all of the gifts of the Spirit in and of himself. No one has perfect knowledge. Right? Others are going to excel in some areas, and then I may excel in other areas. But we need each other. There is this mutual exchange 
in the body of Christ amongst the believers in the church that makes it to where we're all beneficial on one another. And then ultimately, we all need to be going to the Word of God as our primary counselor. The prophets and the apostles teach, taught through the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom that is necessary for this present life. 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Right? Men make many plans. Some of these plans are evil and contrary to the will of God. Some plans are a part and parcel of what it means to live on this present earth. Right? We have to make plans concerning the future, concerning what we're going to do. However, whatever man's plans are about this world, about sin, about life, right, about religious things, about wisdom, whatever it is that is in the mind of man, in the heart of man, ultimately, whose counsel will stand against all of the plans of man? It is the counsel of the Lord. So we may, even in a right sense, plan out what we're going to do the next year, right? We can be doing that in a humble way, in a way of diligence, in a way of, of not wanting to be caught off guard. We can say, okay, we want to have uh, this paid off by, by this point, and it's good and fine for us to make those plans. But ultimately, all of our plans have to be subjected to whose plan? To whose counsel? It has to be subjected to God's. And if God desires to take our life in a month, can we say to God, well, you can't do that because I need to pay my house off in two years? No, you can't do that because ultimately God's counsel and God's plans, they will succeed. They will never be thwarted. So ultimately, we must subject everything to his counsel and his plans. Now, those things that are revealed concerning the will and counsel of God, this is a part of the Christian life, conforming our desires and our plans to the plan of God, right? To the counsel and the will of God. This is why we pray so that our will will be aligned with the will of God. But then even in those things that are not revealed, for example, none of us knows the day of our death. But that day of death is known by who? It is known by God. And will we be able to frustrate that will of God? No, there's no way. So even though we may make plans, and even though some of those plans may be legitimate and right for us to do, ultimately, they're all dependent upon the will of God, right? They're all dependent on God's will, and that's why we should pray, not my will, but your will be done, right? Whatever your will is, God, I'm doing the best that I can. I'm making plans. I'm trying to live a wise and godly life, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I subject everything to you and to whatever you determine is best and right and good for my present life. James chapter 4, James 4 verse 13. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Here, the, the issue is not that they are making plans, right? To, I mean, if you're going to go to a city, if you're going to engage in business there, and if that business is legitimate and, and right and fine, and the whole purpose of having a business is to make a profit, 
for the benefit of your family and your own livelihood. So there's nothing wrong with any of those things in the right way. But their problem is that they're making all these plans, but who are they not consulting? They're not consulting God. They're not saying, if God wills, then this is what we're going to do. They're not submitting those plans that are in their heart to the ultimate will of God. They're not thinking in those terms, but that's the way that we have to be in regards to our life, right? If it is revealed in the word of God, then we have to say, this is what I'm going to do because this is what God requires. But if it is things that are maybe subjective to our own life, who we're going to marry, right? What house we're going to live in, what car we're going to drive, what job we're going to have, right? Uh, What we're going to do uh, this year or next year, then all of those things have to be submitted to the Lord's will. Not my will, but your will. Lord, if you will, then this is what we're going to do. And our life must be subjected to the will of God in all things. Verse 22. What is desirable in a man is his kindness. And it is better to be poor than a liar. Here, the glory and beauty of a godly man is seen in his kindness. That he is a kind, a tender, a compassionate man. Right? If there is no kindness in the man, then he's not a desirable person. Those who are harsh, who are bitter, who are mean in the way that they deal with others, no one desires to be around them. Right? No one wants anything to do with them because they lack kindness. Right? A harsh, mean person is somebody that you don't want as your friend, you don't want as your associate, you don't want to be around them at all. But someone who is kind and compassionate, this is desirable, right? This makes people want to befriend him. They want to be around him because he has this reputation of being such a kind man. And this is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? Kindness is a fruit that the Spirit produces in the children of God. And this is a crown on the head of those who are godly in that they are kind, considerate, compassionate people, and it is desirable, right? This is what makes them desirable to other people, even to outsiders, even those who may not be believers. The elders of the church are to have a good reputation with outsiders. And what is it that makes them have such a good reputation among them? It is their meekness, their quietness, their humility, their kindness, and their compassion toward their fellow man that even though they don't agree with you and even though they don't believe as we believe, they still appreciate and admire the kindness that is in the person. It makes him desirable to his fellow man. And it ought to be something that we cultivate in our own life. We should desire and make it a, a purpose to be kind people to others, right? Instead of being jerks or mean or bitter, severe, harsh, first in the home, How can we practice this outside the home and not practice it first in the home? We should be kind to our wife or the women to their husbands. The parents should be kind to the children. The children should be kind to one another. This is the way that we should behave toward one another. It needs to start in the home. It needs to be true in the church as well. Who wants to have a minister or a pastor who's a harsh, severe man? Is that going to encourage the people to want to come to him? with their burdens, to want to come to him for counsel, for wisdom, to overcome sin? Of course not. They're going to be terrified of him. They're not going to want to come to him if he's not a kind and compassionate person. 
and then into society as well, with our fellow man, wherever we're dealing with him here and there. We should have kindness toward each other. Then also, it is better to be poor man than to be a liar. Right? It's better to be poor and honest than to be a rich liar. Right? That's the contrast that he's making here. Though in terms of status, in terms of wealth, people would say it's better to be rich than poor. But in terms of virtue, it's better to be poor and have the virtue of honesty than to be rich and be lacking in that virtue of honesty, but instead to be a liar. And the reason is because where do all liars go? They all go to the lake of fire, right? To the lake of fire, and their riches will not deliver them on that day. 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life. The fear of the Lord, right? Which is the salvation that's found in faith in Christ Jesus. This is what leads to life. It leads to eternal life, the fear of the Lord. Not riches, not wealth, not my own righteousness, but the fear of the Lord. The wisdom of God found in the word of God, founded on the person of Jesus Christ, right? The wisdom that makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This leads to eternal life so that one may sleep satisfied, knowing that he has no condemnation, knowing that he's been reconciled to God, knowing right, that he is a child of God. That is what helps him sleep well at night, knowing that if he dies in his sleep or if he dies the next day, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is a peace that he has that surpasses all understanding. Those in the world do not know this peace. Many people think if they have plenty of money, lots of riches and wealth, then they'll sleep well at night because they have nothing to worry about. They're not going to worry about their next meal. They're not going to worry about how they're going to make their mortgage payment, how they're going to uh, provide for their family if they have plenty of wealth. But even the rich can get sick and die. They can catch some uh, mysterious virus that will kill them instantly. And then what's, what goods are money going to do them? It's going to do them none at all because they came into this world naked and they leave, they'll leave this world naked and then they'll stand before God. But what is it that gives us eternal peace? It is the fear of the Lord, knowing our sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. He is satisfied and untouched by evil. Untouched by evil. Not that evil people don't exist, and not that evil people may not be able to commit deeds of evil against him. But can an evil man cast our soul into hell? Can they do that to any of God's children? What is the worst an evil man can do? What's the worst the devil can do to a child of God? They can kill our body, but can they touch our souls? And can they keep God from giving us salvation, from glorifying our bodies, from raising us from the dead one day and seating us in heavenly places? Ultimately, evil cannot touch us. It may be able to touch us temporarily, just for a moment, but not eternally and not ultimately. This is why all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, no evil will befall God's children. It says in Psalm 91.10, no evil will befall us because God will take all of that evil and ultimately use it for our good and for his glory, and he will deliver us from all of it in the end. 
when we receive the redemption of our body, right? When we receive the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Verse 24. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Here, the sluggard, he's so lazy. It's too much work for him even to put food into his mouth. He's hungry. The food is before him. He does half of the work. He buries his hand into the dish, but he's so lazy, he cannot even bear to bring his hand, to lift his arm out of the dish and to put the food into his mouth. And if a person is this lazy, right? And of course, this is a exaggeration in order to make a point, right? A person that is this lazy, what hope does he have? If he can't even eat, he doesn't even have the strength or the energy to put food in his mouth. Well, of course, he's not going to work. And then what about his soul? Is he going to do those things necessary to the tending of his soul? Is he going to be attentive to come and hear the word of God? Is he going to read the word of God? Is he going to offer prayers to God? Is he going to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness? He's not going to do any of these things. He's so lazy, he can't even put his hand to his mouth. And this is a great, great evil, right? And the Bible speaks of this. And it's true both in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm as well. We cannot be spiritually lazy, sluggards spiritually. That is the problem in Hebrews chapter 5. Their dull of hearing is their, it's laziness. They're being slothful in the way that they hear the word of God. They're not being diligent in the practice of godliness and in the way that they hear God's word. 25. Strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding and he will gain knowledge. Here, strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd. If there is a scoffer or a criminal or some, someone who has done what is evil and they receive a punishment and that punishment is a public punishment and a naive person who is also himself bent toward this kind of scoffing, when he sees what happens to that scoffer, he himself will become shrewd. If this scoffer is a thief, and the naive man has a tendency toward thievery, then he sees the thief getting a public beating, he's going to say, you know what, I would like to steal, but I also would like to not get a public beating, therefore I'm not going to steal because I don't want to get beat. This is one of the purposes of punishment in this way, so that the rest may stand in fear and not commit the same kinds of crimes. So when the scoffer is struck, then the naive man becomes shrewd, right? In here, this shrewdness is a shrewdness associated with self-preservation in this present life. There are many people who have the desires to steal, to lie, to murder, to commit adultery, right? To do these various kinds of sins. And yet their evil desires are restrained out of a sense of self-preservation. They don't want to go to prison, they don't want to get a beating. They don't want to have to pay this fine or this penalty that will be exacted upon them if they commit this crime. So though they are lawless people in their heart, and though they want to commit these various crimes, it is the fear of punishment that keeps them in check, keeps them from doing these things, even though they're still naive people. They gain a measure of shrewdness in the way that they operate in this present world whenever there are these punishments. 
So it even benefits a naive person who's not even a true believer. But how much more than one who has understanding? Reprove one with understanding and he will gain knowledge. Right? If a naive person can gain some shrewdness by seeing this, then how much more a man of understanding who has the fear of the Lord, who is a true believer with the mind of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, he will gain knowledge when he sees these things. Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. The scoffer will hate you, the wise man will love you, because the wise man, he wants to gain more wisdom and more knowledge, and this he will gain. 26, he who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and disgraceful son. A son who would assault his father, who would actually strike him, come to blows with his father. This is a crime of such enormity, of such grotesqueness, that the father and mother that brought them into the world, the father and mother right, who provided for them, the father who worked so diligently and so hard for them to put clothes on their back, to put food on the table, to provide a roof over their head, Right? He does all of these things for the benefit of the child, and yet for that child to grow up, to have such hatred for his father that he would actually assault him. This is a very shameful and a disgraceful thing. And there are men who are like this. There are sons who, when they become teenagers or they become young men, they have such hatred for their fathers that they would even punch them, hit them, strike them, assault them in this way. Now, on the other side of that, if the fathers are harsh, if they're bitter, if they're severe with their children, then they're provoking their children to do these types of things. So it's a two-way two street, right? It is a two-way street. However, the child must have self-control. Even if he has a severe, a harsh, a mean father, he still must exercise self-control and still be appreciative, though the father is in many ways a worthless man, yet in some ways he's a good man because he did at least provide food for him, clothing for him. He did provide some manner of benefit to him, and the love for what he's done for him ought to keep the son from striking the father and because of the relationship, right? He is the father, therefore he deserves to have proper honor, proper respect, even if in some areas he is a worthless man. So the father should not, on the one hand, provoke the children to wrath, and then the children should not respond in wrath by assaulting the father. Or the mother, driving the mother away. Most of the time, the son won't strike the mother, right? Because she is the weaker vessel or the weaker sex, and it is rare for men to strike women, though it is becoming more rare, uh, less rare today. It's also becoming less rare for women to think that they can slap men in the face and get away with it. <laughs> so we shouldn't do it either way. Women should behave right and be more tender, and men ought to be more respectful for them. Typically, a son won't assault the mother, but for him to drive his mother away means that when the mother becomes old, when the father is dead and the mother needs someone to care for her because she's not able to provide for herself, well, who is the one that should do this? 
It is the son that ought to care for the mother. And instead of driving her away, bring her into his home and provide for her and care for her in her old age. Didn't even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ do this on the cross? He made sure in John 19 that his mother was cared for after he was going to die. He committed her into the hands of the apostle whom he loved or the disciple whom he loved. So a son should love his father and love his mother. He should not assault the father, nor should he drive the mother away whenever she comes into old age and needs someone to care for her. And one that does that is shameful and is disgraceful. It is a disgraceful, shameful thing for a son to behave in this way. But it is an honorable thing when they fulfill the duties that they have to their parents. Exodus 21 Exodus 21:15 says, "He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death." Then verse 17, "He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death." So the penalty for this severe the severe violation of the 5th commandment is the death penalty. To strike or to curse father or mother is deserving of death. So instead of doing that, we should give proper love and respect to our father and our mother. And hopefully, there will be a desire to do that because of mutual love and affection for one another. But even if that is lacking because of some deprivation in the parents, then it is a very honorable thing for the son to take up and to do his duty because it's the right thing to do. Even if he may not have this natural love and affection because of a sour relationship from the parents, it's still an honorable thing for him to do his duty, perform it to father and mother. And we ought to do such things. 27, cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Right? Cease listening, and you're going to stray either... Uh, from love of the world, which causes us to not be attentive to the word of God, or that he does not come and learn from the word of God, right? So if we're worldly minded, we're not going to come and hear the word of God, or even if we are hearing the word of God, we're not going to be paying attention when we're there. That's like Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11. Also, if they're listening to false teachers, If you're listening to a false teacher, you're not listening to true discipline, right? You're not listening to to what you ought to listen to. So if we cease listening to good discipline, which is the teaching of the Word of God, then we're going to stray from words of knowledge. There needs to be this continual hearing of the Word of God. And as we hear the Word of God over and over and over again, as we're exposed to the Word of God, as we're reading it and studying it and meditating on it and hearing the Word of God taught, then we're going to stay on the straight and narrow. But as we cease to do such things, what's going to begin to happen? We're going to start drifting away and we'll drift further and further and further and further away so that we are void of any knowledge or of any understanding. So we have to continually give ourselves to the Word of God. 2 Peter chapter 2 2 Peter chapter 2, 
verse 20. It says, For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So there, they know the commandment, but then they turn away from it. Because they cease from listening to the word of God. And as a result, they stray away from words of knowledge. Then verse 28. A rascally witness makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. Here, a rascally witness. Now, this is a word that we should start using more often, okay? Rascally. This is a rascally fellow over here. Well, a witness who is a rascally witness makes a mockery of justice. Because he's a rascal and a swindler and a weasel, he has no concern about truth, about righteousness, about justice, Right? He's doing whatever is beneficial to his own well-being, right? to his own situation and standing. So he doesn't care about truth and right. He just cares about getting his own way in the world. Therefore, he makes a mockery of justice. He's not giving truthful, honest testimony. When he is called to be a witness for this person or that person or a witness against this one or that one, he doesn't care about justice. He's just going to say whatever is expedient to his own benefit and well-being. And if someone is willing to give him money to say a certain thing, then he'll take it because this is what rascals do. He's a rascally person. He's going to do whatever it takes to benefit himself, and this will make a mockery of justice. Right? And the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. Their mouth leads to more and more sin and more and more iniquity. So if he is a false witness who is exonerating this person who deserves to be put in prison, someone who is guilty, and yet he uses his witness to get this guilty person free, then what's going to happen if this criminal is set loose back onto the streets? Is he going to change his ways? No, he's going to go back right to his old ways. And so iniquity is going to spread throughout the land. Or if there's an innocent man, and he uses his witness and testimony in order to have this innocent man convicted of some crime that he didn't commit, then that also is going to spread more iniquity because now this righteous person has been unjustly condemned, punished, and put into prison or whatever other punishment. So we ought to be true and faithful witnesses. Whatever is the opposite of being rascally, right? That's what we want to be. We want to be honest, sincere, truthful in our witness and testimony, whatever accords to truth and righteousness. This is what we should be concerned with and what is good and just in the sight of God. Then lastly, 29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. Here, either in this life with the civil authorities or in the life to come by God himself or in both, right? Whatever needs to happen, this is what will happen. Sometimes it is both. Sometimes both in this life and in the life to come, scoffers will come under judgment and blows will be for the back of fools. But if not in this life, we can be certain and sure that it will take place in the life to come and it will take place on the day of judgment. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And here, judgment and punishment always go together. 
Whenever God pronounces judgment upon a man, then the punishment is sure to follow. If the man is judged, then there will be a blow for the back of this fool. The stroke will be delivered to him according to the justice of God. He will punish all of those who deserve punishment for their crimes, for the sins that they have committed against him. And the only way we are able to escape this is because the blows or the stroke of justice that was due to us was given to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He took the blows that we deserved, right? The stroke that was due to the people was placed upon him. But we know in that, that it is certainly true that judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools, that God will punish all workers of iniquity in due time. And there's no way for us to escape that punishment except through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way that we can escape, not because God sweeps all of our sins under the rug, but because the stroke that was due to us is delivered onto his back, right? God gave him the blow instead of delivering it to us. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 in verse 41 says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There, the judgment is pronounced and the punishment is exacted. Eternal punishment. And this will happen to all scoffers and all fools. So we must be delivered from this. First, by conversion. We are fools by nature. God must convert us and change us into righteous men and women. And this he does through regeneration. But then also, it should be manifested in the way that we live in this present world. That we are not scoffers who hate the word of God and the wisdom of God, but rather those who love it, who want to learn, who want to understand, who are seeking counsel from the Lord, and who are desiring to conform our life more and more into the very image of Christ. And so let us then aspire for such living this week. So as we go from here and as we go back out into our lives, into our homes, to our places of work and business, let us strive to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and pray that God would give us the strength to do such things. So let's pray, and then with that, uh, we will be dismissed. And I'm going to ask Bruce, would you pray and dismiss us today?